The Falling Middle Cast is a spin-off series from the creators of Mars on Life. This series provides review and commentary of Barbara Ehrenreich's Fear of Falling, The Inner Life of the Middle Class. Since this series analyzes the text and provides a critique on class in America, this is not a comprehensive audiobook and follows all copyright claims. Now, back to the show. Welcome, listeners. This is the Falling Middle Cast, a podcast all about Barbara Ehrenreich's book, Fear of Falling. Sebastian, how you doing, buddy? Uh, well, since you asked... Uh, I know I asked you literally a minute ago, but... You, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I... It comes and it goes. It's really about the best way I can put it, you know? It's not even related to this podcast i mean maybe it is but i don't know every day i I sort of find myself waking up with just this feeling of not so much dread but just how do i not be in this criteria of people that need to worry constantly about money management and you think You'd think, oh, well, given my background, that should be no problem. You're right. It isn't. <laughs> At least not yet. But I don't know. I just every single day I wake up and I don't want to go to work. Every single day I wake up and I just don't want to do things. <laughs> and I guess bottom line, I, I, I guess I'm just wishing for an early retirement. <laughs> No, really, it's just I'd rather spend my days doing this, you know, mm-hmm. talking, recording, having these conversations. And I don't know, so much of the day is just eaten away with just work that it's it's not appealing, but I'm at an age now where it's supposed to be fulfilling. I don't know, man. I don't know. Part, part of me thinks that I made a mistake somewhere along the way. Like, it's just it's very difficult to be excited about a lot right Mm. now but i don't know if i open up any more about it it'll just turn into one big therapy session and that's not what the listeners are here to to listen to so well uh good news is we've almost done with chapter one Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh yes so we'll we'll wrap up chapter one we can read a little bit of chapter two um i part of me would want to get a few sections into chapter two, but I, I feel like this could be a, a, a little bit of a shorter episode just so that we, we sort of wrap up the loose ends of chapter one, perhaps do a bit of a reflection on chapter one. I mean, for the most part, we've set all of our piece because I know I did this last week and I did it again just before we hopped on the call. Um, but I remember last week checking to see, well, what do we have to look forward to in chapter two? And oh boy. Oh boy. <laughs> you know, what's... What's going on politically with uh, with at least one side of the aisle amidst all of this chaos involving mm, poverty? Exists it does. Mm, what does it do? Mm-hmm. And then the other <laughs> side ba- being basically being like, you know, 
It's Always Been There, and then belts out the song from Hunt for Red October. Anyway, that's not true. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, don't don't misinterpret my earlier sentiment as just me not wanting to work. I certainly yeah. do. I just, I don't know. Is there a way to, is there a way to that isn't so soul sucking and is still livable? I don't know. And and it's that unknowing that I guess gets me worried because mm-hmm. if I'm not well off, I'm poor. And the next chapter, this chapter, the infantilization of it is where we left off and where we shall continue. Mm-hmm. The very diversity that made the poor such a politically vacuous category was the first thing poverty experts forgot when they attempted to characterize the poor. The result was that the middle class conception of the poor bore little resemblance to any actual group of people, certainly not the insurgent African-American poor and not even the sad collections of case studies lumped together by the news magazines. The invented poor were a reflection of middle class needs and a projection of middle class anxieties. They were, first of all, others, quote unquote, aliens inhabiting a world of their own that might as well have lain outside the national boundaries. Michael Harrington, who was certainly one of the most committed advocates of the poor, set the tone when he wrote, There is, in short, a language of the poor, a psychology of the poor, a worldview of the poor. To be impoverished is to be an internal alien, to grow up in a culture that is radically different from the one that dominates society. Now, the culture was the culture of poverty. And no matter how diverse the actual poor might be, senior citizens, sharecroppers, bohemians, laid-off blue-collar workers, most middle-class poverty experts believed that they were all citizens of a single invisible nation, the culture of poverty. In fact, the poor are not even a class in any meaningful sense. Poverty is a condition shared by people who come from many different starting points. For many, it's a temporary condition, set to rights when a plant starts rehiring. A sickness passes. <laughs> or a spouse returns. God, what is this phlegm in my throat? I don't know if you can hear it, but mm. I'm never drink I'm never drinking monster again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get all energized, you know. Yeah, let's talk about the poor. How do we fix it? But it's just making me feel sad that this was what the world was and still is to a degree. Mm-hmm. The idea that the poor were victims. Of, were victims of some shared character defect seemed to be supported by a number of studies in the late 50s and early 60s that found more actual diagnosable mental illness among the poor than among the more comfortable class. Mental illness? Really? Uh, okay. Sorry, it's just my, my honest reaction. Like, that's how they characterized it? Uh, as psychiatrist, as psychiatrist Robert Coles observed glumly, those pockets of poverty whose existence is increasingly acknowledged are also pockets of many kinds of psychopathology, mostly untreated. But the studies did not find that all the poor were mentally ill or that all the poor who were mentally ill <clears throat> suffered from the same syndrome. The poor had a variety of mental disorders, as did the middle class, only the poor had more just as they had more and more serious physical ailments. One reason is that people who become ill 
physically or mentally, tend also to lose their jobs and become poor. The other, numerically more significant, explanation is that poverty is unbearably stressful. To live in poverty is to live with constant uncertainty, to accept galling indignities, and to expect harassment by the police, welfare officials, and employers, as well as by others who are poor and desperate. Yet in the theorizing that accompanied the discovery of poverty, the causality was often reversed. See, the poor lacked money because they suffered from a collective disorder which had been identified as the, quote, culture of poverty. And the peculiar psychopathology or culture of the poor was, and still is, <laughs> there you go, thought to be defined by two related traits, quote, present time orientation and an insufficiently developed, quote, deferred gratification pattern, or DGP, as some sociologists put it handily. In simpler words, the poor person lived for the moment. Oh, man. <laughs> I don't even want to read ahead, but as I do, it's just like they're really not giving poor people a lot of credit here. I can almost trace this back verbatim as to like the, the episode that we did about the lottery where it's like you, me, and fellow co-host of Mars on Life, Matt Fernandez, talked about how individuals in in, in in lower classes often contribute to the lottery. Mm -hmm. and these are individuals who economically speaking should be contributing to the lot to the lottery because it doesn't make any fiscal sense. Why would you piss away that money? And it was the, it was the dream. It was the notion that to, to be pulled out of this social socioeconomic status um, by sheer luck, like that was the goal. Mm-hmm. But as I'm reading here, you know, in simpler words, a poor person lived for the moment, unable to think ahead to save or plan for the future. These were the very opposite of the traits the middle class liked to ascribe itself. Self-discipline, a strong superego, an ability to plan ahead to meet self-imposed goals and so forth. See, there you go. It's already lumping in two distinct demographics of individuals who, I guess, A, know how to save their money and thus are not, do not encompass the poverty line. Or are or above it are not affected by uh, fiscal manners, or B, those who are at or below the poverty line who, I guess, retroactively make bad financial decisions. But I feel bad even saying that because someone below the poverty line can do all they can to save every last red cent and mm -hmm. still not have it attest to. Well, anything. and then you have. The alternative line of thought, which which is sort of the way I would frame it, where you've got on one hand the middle class uh, person mm -hmm. who believes they have the self discipline, self discipline, uh, strong super ego, and ability to plan ahead to meet self imposed self imposed goals and so forth, but the reality is that person is irresponsible with their money as right. anybody else can. Meanwhile, you've got the person who's more, basically someone who's poor, who is grasping on something like the lottery from the standpoint of, this is my <clears throat> ticket out of hell, right. but this is also the best that my uh, country has to offer in terms of giving me any kind of a safety net for myself and my family. Right. You know, there's no welfare, there's no stimulus, you know, regular, there's no... Um, what is it? Uh, uh, like universal income? Exactly. Like, There's no right. UBI whatsoever. It's just a lottery ticket, and all I can do is just keep scratching away, hoping that one day 
it'll work out. And it's if anything, like I, I, I get it when it comes to there are people that are obviously like, okay, you shouldn't be wasting all your time with lottery tickets. Mm -hmm. But I also understand that when you're conditioned to think that that's the best you can do, or that's the best, that's the best way to get out of your situation based on the limitations of the world you live in. It to me, it's more of an indictment on your surroundings and where you're growing up rather than that individual. Right. Um, well, it's it's also to factor in the alternative, which I guess as a direct opposite to gambling would be directly saving and investing. However, the time horizon for that, it's not feasible for those in poverty um, right. to wait, you know, because an investment, what is an investment other than a, you know, a waiting game of your time and money. And even then, risks are associated with that. So <laughs> yeah, I guess you could say that even even those in the most prestigious white-collar environments who make six, seven figures a year, who who may think that they're the most fiscally responsible person in the room investing and saving all this money, I'm like, really? With this With this most recent downturn in the market, really? So, Mm -hmm. you know, there are risks on both ends, and it's just, it's interesting to note how individuals would sort of make that snap judgment of, oh, why are you pissing away your money playing the lottery when you could, you know, save it and invest it when most people don't have that time. And it's it's not me defending the lottery by any stretch of the imagination, because the odds are, the odds are still infinitesimal from the first day to the thousandth, but... I can understand individuals hoping that $1 could be turned into 1000 mm-hmm. from a simple scratch-off ticket or a simple playing of the numbers. <clears throat> from a middle-class point of view, the culture of poverty even had a certain kind of charm. Living in the present, Oscar Lewis observed, one may develop a capacity for spontaneity, for the enjoyment of the sensual, which is often blunted in middle-class, future-oriented man. And leaving aside the psychiatric jargon, a person who lives entirely in the present, unable to wait for the next anticipated pleasure, is, of course, a child. <laughs> Which, again, I, I hate to just keep going on tangents, but, like, I want to say that that's the case. I want to say that people who aren't good with their money... And people, you know, people who are not fiscally responsible and people who live for the moment and people who don't think about the the consequences of the future or mm-hmm. past consequences to learn from are by definition immature. But you can't do that because <laughs> the world is not black and white and people do learn from their mistakes. Some of them, I hope they do. But then again... I'm sure you know individuals who keep making the same mistakes, hoping that, you know, you you want to know the definition of insanity, Holmes? It's by doing the same thing over and over and expecting something different. That's it's not even the accent used for Far Cry 3, but... I didn't know <laughs> that's how Einstein sounded when he said that. I was like... Damn, nah, Einstein, man. I thought you were from Austria, fool. You've never... <laughs> And according but, to that one guy, Yahoo Sirius, you're from Tasmania. What the hell's going on? 
but I hate I hate using like the consumerist drivel drivel argument of like oh yeah the guy pouring all of his money into like Netflix Funko Pop and OnlyFans subscriptions yeah that guy knows how to spend his money you could say that he's living in the moment because he's buying products and services akin to the era that he or she is living in the problem is is that I don't think to most people that would be a good use of money. Right. Because he's not thinking for the future. You know, he's not, I guess if you want to take the Robert Kiyosaki route, he's not buying assets. He's buying liabilities, which makes me cringe just like you did. But at the same time, is that a, is that because of poverty and the lack of financial education? Mm -hmm. Or is it the fact that, we have been so inundated with how to live our lives and how to how to fiscally manage that there are a lot of people who probably would prefer to live in the moment and be like, no, screw this. I'm going to spend my money on because there there is a fair argument that could be established here that I go to work, I make money, I'm going to spend money on the things that I like. Right. Whether or not those things that I spend my money on are are solid investments. Well, I don't care. It's my money. Well, should you care? I don't know. I'm not the one to say so. Of course, I am the one to lampoon it. And if you are spending your money on this, this, and this, as aforementioned, I'm going to be like, yeah, let's see a balance sheet on there, big man. Because <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how that's going to be sustainable. Because, of course, you're going to have to go to the argument of sustainability. Is Are your financial habits sustainable? And if not, well, there's your answer. But yeah. of course, no one wants to. No one wants to tell others how to spend their money. Of course not. No one wants to tell people how much they make in a year. They believe it's a taboo topic. I don't blame them. But then again, I'm also for having that conversation of why people think that it's taboo. Well, and then you get into weird territory when you do decide to talk about how much you make in a year, and then you realize, uh, based on what your coworkers have to say, that oh. Maybe my maybe the the company that such and such person is working for is not paying their employees equally based on uh well appearances for example um right and, so, and, and the, which, and which the is argument, definitely real I you know right it's, and, yeah. and the argument for that is whether you have some half cocked oh well the minimum wage is this this and this that doesn't exist minorly speaking it's not true. Of course, that's all bullshit, number one. But mm. number two, you often find that in the same argument, these people <clears throat> touting that would be like, well, it's not so much how much you make, it's how you spend your money. Right. Now, to be fair, there is some truth in that. Because, of course, as an adult, you are expected to make purchases equivalent to the amount of financial knowledge that you have. And... If you have none, then I can almost assure you that you would be like Exhibit A, pissing away his stimulus check on just OnlyFans subscriptions and <laughs> Netflix. Like, what do millennials purchase nowadays? What do Zoomers purchase? Anyway, so I, I and and I'll continue on after this, but I do. It's not so much that I like the sentiment of it's not how much you make, it's how you spend it, but mm -hmm. I do feel that there needs to be more of a thorough discussion into that because 
there are innately good purchases, there are innately bad purchases, and I do feel like you can extract a lot of one's personality dependent on how he or she spends his or her money. Yeah. Only problem is, is that when people have this emotional attachment towards their money, which to to be fair, why, why wouldn't you? It's your money. That's when you start to get into a lot of gatekeeping elements of, well, you shouldn't spend your money on that, or you should spend your money on that, and you're a fool if you do or you don't. So mm. it, a lot of factors go into it. Yeah. But the the conceit of the the conceit of the poor as children has an ancient aristocratic lineage. In mid-century America, it was bolstered by the perception of poverty as a vestigial condition, something left over that did not really belong in the affluent modern world. Mass poverty seemed to belong in the historical past, along with the depression, sweatshops, dirt farms, labor struggles, a la things that still exist in second and third world countries. Oh, that isn't written. Oh, my bad. And what belongs in the historical past is easy to confuse with the personal past, which is, for all of us, childhood. The invented poor, the inhabitants of the culture of poverty, were not so much present-oriented as trapped in the past, unable or unwilling to, quote, grow up, as the middle class had, into the ever-available, up-to-date affluence. The poor person, as half-child, half-psychopath, was of course related to the familiar figure of the juvenile delinquent. And it was not entirely an accident that Washington's War on Poverty evolved out of an earlier project to abolish delinquency. Before there was poverty, there had been only juvenile delinquency to stand as a faint reminder of class inequality. And much of what... Oh, I thought you were shaking your head for a second there. <laughs> oh, no, I just... I had like a strain in like at the, like the base of my neck, and I was like, oh, God. <laughs> and much of what was known about the psycho the psychopatho psychopathology of poverty had come from the study of juvenile delinquents as a category in which to place society's outsiders poverty was an improvement because it did not imply delinquency only psychic immaturity but the invented poor were not only children. They had come to represent what the middle class feared most in itself. A softening of character, a lack of firm internal values. Oh, a softening of character, character, a lack of firm internal values. So basically the, the old adage of, oh, weak men create hard times. Hard, hard times create strong men. Strong times create good. It, mm. Okay. So they've managed to boil it down in all of two sentiments, which... Yeah, that pretty much explains it. But two contemporary critics of the culture of poverty notion, S.M. Miller and Frank Reisman, <clears throat> pointed out that the self-image the middle class derived from its reflections on the poor was unduly flattering to the middle class and probably out of date. In contrast to the poor, they wrote, the middle class liked to characterize itself as, quote, delighting in hard work, abjuring debt and constantly forgoing the indulgence of present gain in order to reap future rewards. But these were exactly the traits the middle class feared it was losing, and, from the point of view of the purveyors of consumer goods, could not lose fast enough. As Miller and Reisman observed, quote, it is hard to recognize this Protestant ethic pattern in the new middle class possessed by other direction and pursuing the consumption euphoria of today. So every time you've heard me mention yeoman farmers over the course of Mars on Life, that's my synonymous way of 
suggesting the Protestant ethic of early mm -hmm. America that basically carried on up until like the Victorian era that arguably got completely swatted from existence thanks to uh, the Gilded Age, where it was like, we're all working hard together to get society moving, and then by like the 18, mid-1870s, it was like, oh, monocle, you know, it was, it so, was, the, it was, yeah, so, like it was so, the J.P. Morgans, but then you also had like everybody who was so dirt poor and struggling and trying to work on the railroads and then getting killed because they worked on the railroads because they wanted to unionize, etc., so uh so it's the yeah. typical ayn rand wet dream in the beginning where hard work equals something compensatory with the work that you did but everybody's gonna eat because everyone's working however there's a a vast inequality of the jobs being done and the salaries being doled out and oh no you still have individuals who are subjugated to surprise surprise lower wages you know, and some people argue it was a a revolution of sorts. I strongly beg to differ. But, you know, for example, the election of Andrew Jackson, like mm -hmm. you could argue that was a real a real test in favor of democracy from the standpoint of, you know, the the candidate who was the common man won and became president and the people that voted for him voted for him because he reflected them. And in a lot of ways he did for mostly horrible reasons and and that really didn't carry forward a whole lot past that point and it only began to dwindle and dwindle until you got like the populist movement and then obviously with the rise of Eugene Debs at the turn of the 20th century so it by by 1900 that sort of democratic one might argue well certainly wasn't democratic socialist but that democratic working class ethic moving society forward pretty much was completely toast by 1900. Mm. Uh, for more listeners, I'd recommend Prisoners of the American Dream by Mike Davis. <laughs> what kind of personality developed in the culture of poverty, if not that of the ideal consumer? Historian Donald Meyer has described the consumer personality as it emerged in the early 20th century as, quote, passive. Weaned from saving and hoarding so that he, the consumer, might spend, weaned from piling up possessions in order to expedite planned obsole obsolescence, weaned from ascetic discipline so that he might respond to every innovation, weaned from work identities so that he might have the time for consumption. The ideal consumer, like the denizen of the culture of poverty, is hedonistic, impulsive, and self-indulgent. Nothing could better serve the consumer goods industries than for everyone to abandon their, quote, capacity for deferred gratification and become as suggestible and addicted to sensation as the poor were said to be. Sounds like Aiden Ross. <sighs> These were the traits that marketing men hoped to inculcate in all Americans, and especially those who had the money to spend. And they were the same traits, more or less, that intellectuals such as David Reisman and Betty Friedan found spreading throughout the middle class. With the discovery of poverty, the threat could be externalized. Someone else had succumbed to the softening effects of the consumer culture. Someone so alien, so aberrant, as to dwell outside of affluence itself. 
The experts and policymakers who promoted the notion of the culture of poverty had generous enough intentions. They simply wanted to underscore the psychic damage inflicted by poverty. The poor have become, in our affluent society, a sealed-off community with its own crippled values, liable to erupt into crime and psychopathic violence. They form pockets of misery in city slums throughout the land as well as in remote rural areas. And they have to go if society is not to be poisoned. God, can you imagine that? Can you imagine a society so blatantly consumeristic in culture and design, though by that same token, the bad guys? So a society perpetuating this nonsense is also demonizing the ones who need help the most. By, by this book's definition, either need help the most or can't seem to unshackle themselves from their lack of willpower. I forgot where I said it, if it was on here, on Mars on Life, but homelessness, that's mm -hmm. a policy decision. That's not, you know, yes. I mean, that's about as tone deaf as basically saying, we'll just buy a house. Right. <laughs> okay, for, well. For some people, I mean, you know, one personal example, well, professional example i won't get too into the details of it but you know somebody who somebody i know who got into subsidized housing only to be removed because she went through a mental health crisis uh it was like the best that she got in terms of uh you know just any kind of housing and the fact that she lost it it's like you're supposed to be helping you're supposed to be elevating somebody and preventing them from getting to be homeless and you know Right. This is happening within an area, especially where I live, where there is a pretty substantial homeless population. So it's, and of course, it, need it we often... say more about California with all the money in that state, you know, it's one of the richest states in the country. I'm going to start sounding like Bernie. It's one of the yeah. richest states in the country, and yet you can't do, you have a economic, you have an economic surplus, and you can't do a goddamn thing about homelessness? What, what's with the, what's with Sacramento? Well, it makes yeah. me wonder, too, how they denoted, you know, the poor as individuals, because I keep coming back to that whole mental illness thing. And part of me wants to. I'm not sure how controversial this would sound, but if we're looking at issues of homelessness, of mental illness and innately negative traits of situational circumstance. Mm hmm. I think the entirety of mental illness and perhaps being on medication as a result of said mental illness, I think the goal is to find yourself in a spot where you don't have to rely on medication permanently, correct? Same thing with homelessness, subsidized housing, temporary housing, anything that you can do to, you know, to, to not have homelessness be the future permanent law of the land, you know? Because if, if politicians are going to come out of the woodwork and say, I plan to eliminate homelessness, okay, that instills to me that homelessness is not something that ideally should be permanent. Like, who wants to be homeless? Who wants to live with a mental illness? Who wants to be fiscally hurting? So right. when I look at when I look at instances of, you know, in this book as, you know, Oh, mental illness. It's like, okay, so this is a glaring problem. 
Aaron Reich's framing the, the mental illness aspect from the standpoint of how it was perceived at that point in time. Not No, no right. Know. But whenever I, I think of mental illness, I often think, you know, the, the snap judgment comes to, okay, well, medication is how you treat mental illness. And I think in my mind, it's how do you get to a point where you don't have to rely on that anymore? So my well, you got to get the medication first. And how are you going to get that when everything costs? Exactly. You know? How do you put yourself in a position where you don't have to rely on the medication or rely on temporary housing or, or basically how do you set yourself up? And I don't even, I hate the whole like, Oh, pull it up by the bootstraps. Yes, there's a little bit of, I guess, if you want to say willpower that goes into it, but individuals need help beyond that, fiscal right. help, like socioeconomic help. Mm -hmm. And I think framing it, or not, not Barbara Ehrenreich, because obviously she's just making an observation, but the way that it was framed previously, it doesn't, it doesn't do anything but stigmatize those who exist below the poverty line. Mm-hmm. One one final point, too, I'll note in terms of you mentioned about politicians that try to go out of their way to say, you know, oh, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm going to be the one to resolve homelessness or I have a plan to combat it. Well, I always find it very dubious whenever I do hear anyone. Good example being the brand new mayor of Los Angeles, uh, Karen Bass, where, mm -hmm. you know, OK, you're now at least in my lifetime since I've been cognizant, you're now the third consecutive mayor of Los Angeles who's basically said, I'm going to end homelessness and here's my plan to do so. Is that out of any kind of background experience or compassion that gives weight to your plan? Or, and this is basically what it always boils down to whenever a politician addresses homelessness, are you doing it basically for the purpose of, uh, for the sole purpose of capital? Meaning, get the homeless out of the way so we can make this whole area a paradise for a bunch of rich people. And typically in a lot of places, where I grew up, where I was born, that's always been the case. It's basically been about, you know, we have a plan to really help people that are unhoused and need attention and need help. And the idea is basically we're just going to remove them out of sight, out of mind them so that mm -hmm. we can have all the other rich white people come in and invade the area and pollute and dilute the Mexican food and just make the area as, you know, crackerjack as possible to the point where you're like, wow, Matt and I really need to get the hell out of Santa Clarita. Right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Well, I can, whatever I can happened. hear Pete talk about uh, <laughs> gentrification, which I echo. It is interesting, not only as a remarkably unselfconscious expression of middle class prejudice, but also as a forerunner of what would come to be by the 1980s, mainstream views on poverty and how to cure it. In quick, vivid strokes, he summarized the culture of poverty. The lower class individual lives from moment to moment. Impulse governs his behavior. He is therefore radically improvident. Whatever he cannot consume, immediately he considers valueless. His bodily needs, especially for sex, and his taste for, quote, action, take precedence over everything else. He has a feeble, atten attenuated sense of self. If this is the lower class, it hardly needs to be said that the vantage point of the author is that of a higher class. 
but he says it anyway. In the chapters that follow, the term, quote, normal will be used to refer to class culture that is not lower class. The problem then is to make the lower class more normal. That is not less poor, but less present-oriented. Poverty itself is not an issue, since, quote, the lower class forms of all problems are at bottom a single problem. The existence of an outlook and style of life, which are radically present-oriented. After dismissing the possibility that the lower class will simply die off, improvements in public sanitation and in medical and hospital care keep many lower class people alive, often in spite of themselves, Banfield considers a number of possible solution, solutions to present-orientedness. Psychotherapy must be rejected. Because the poor are too inarticulate to benefit from it. <laughs> Holy shit, that was based. <laughs> Just straight up. They wouldn't get it. Which, again, is is the culture of poverty that I think I could say we're trying to change. You know? If we're going to say outright that this is why the poor are poor and this is the culture that surrounds it. Okay, well, then the question then is how do we get the poor up to speed so that they're not fiscally suffering? Oh, no, we don't want to do that, Sebastian. Well fuck then you know what then what do we do see okay i'm gonna save this to the end for the chapter summary mm -hmm. because i think it's gonna play into how i'm going to uh both analyze and psychoanalyze the rest of the chapters that we read here mm. was that a pun because you said psychoanalyze just then <laughs> well <laughs> Besides, there are not nearly enough therapists to treat the insane, let alone the present-oriented. Another possibility is that lower-class children could be taken away from their parents at a very early age and brought up by people whose culture is normal. Which our country has a pretty long history of doing. Just look at, uh, oh god, what was it? Not to go on a total tangent, but I'll make this very minute. The, uh... Mm -hmm. oh. I used to know the full name of it, but the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, which was one of the first major Indian boarding schools in the United States, taking a bunch of American Indian children out of the plains to Pennsylvania. I mean, and, and then, of course, Canada just took that plan and made it so much worse and so much more grotesque. And anyway... As a matter of logic, the simplest way to accomplish this would be to permit the sale of infants and children to qualified bidders, both private and public. Unfortunately, there are problems with this approach, too. Yeah, I'd hope so. Not least of which is that, unless threatened with sterilization, the poor might overcome their present-orientedness enough to start bearing babies for profit. Finally, there is the possibility of institutionalization, at least for the, quote, hardest cases. Banfield was left with a few pallid, but, he hoped, more feasible proposals, such as tighter law enforcement, which is what we have, more aggressive population control, which is where we're going, and a lower mm. minimum wage. I, I would argue the opposite. It's more like really? we're, we're just, well, I, Roe v. Wade, is that a, is that a thing anymore? yeah you got me there and a lower minimum wage which i mean compensatory to what the minimum wage is now to the degrees associated with it i would say that it's still fairly low 
And oh. while it hasn't gone down, it's not surmisable to, I guess, what's construed as affordable. Federal minimum wage in 1989, when this came out, is exactly what it is now. <laughs> and it's only like on a state by state basis right. that it's any better. adjusted for adjusted for inflation. That is. Yeah. OK. I don't know. It, it's still it, I, it, seven. I mean, if I was making nine? if I was making sub thirty dollars an hour, which some restaurants and other positions that you could consider menial label labor, if I was making that in 1980s i would say that that's a fair if not hefty wage for those types of positions so the federal minimum wage for covered non-exempt employees is seven dollars and 25 cents per hour and that is current straight, currently currently well currently but it's remained unchanged i think at least since the 1970s Right. So my question is, if I was making $30 an hour in the 1970s doing a task such as that. 30 What? Yeah. Yeah. So some advertised positions, at least in my area, are 15 to $30 an hour for in minimum wage. In 2023. In 2023. Correct. Which is still not compensatory to what's affordable in 2023. So right. at this point, the minimum wage is be more like $30 rather than... Right. 15. So, so my question would be, if I were to make $30 in, say, 1970, 1980, that would probably be a more substantial wage. But as I'm as I'm stating now, you said 725, 750? 725, yeah. Okay. And it's still 725 in some states? Yes. Okay, so, so what is that adjustment based off of in, like, the state of California then? Because if we're... If we're to believe that I could walk in and and make fifteen, I'm just going to say roughly fifteen to thirty an hour, varying on position. If it's not adjusted for inflation, then what is it in adjusted by? Is it adjusted to cost of living, to standard of living? Is it adjusted for? I mean, it. It. I'll, I'll say this because it, it, it's it's complicated, but which right. I hate to give as an excuse, but I will say it. It's obviously it's dependent state by state, but I know that right. some of it's obviously based on policy, which mm -hmm. in of itself is just based on evaluating living conditions within that state, especially if it is a more expensive state. For example, right. like Massachusetts, where only this, wow, only this year, it's $15, whereas California, within the last decade, it was already, I think, past $15, and I think is going to be uh, closer to 16 Yes, I want to say that when I was working for minimum wage, because at the time I was working on machines, I ended up getting bumped up a little bit more so. Yeah. Um, my first job ever, I believe I was making $9.10 an hour. And at 17, mm. 18, that's, I mean... It's not great, especially if living in California. And if right. I would have ran the numbers, I probably would have been like, fuck this. I'm in college, granted. I don't have my degree yet, granted. But I would need a wage compensatory to what I'm studying for. And it, if factoring in the cost of education, that's not going to cut it whatsoever. So, no. Well, and, and, and that's, I think, the sad part about the minimum wage, at least to my knowledge, and I know I'm I'm probably wrong with what I'm about to say, but at least mm -hmm. to my understanding, 
it seems like that's always the one thing that is never there there never is any adjustment for inflation it's just like well you live in this state so therefore you know the the minimum yeah. wage depending on where you're working at and depending on you know if your employers are going to go along with the minimum wage in that state or quote unquote put themselves in financial risk it, it's it might as well be uh 1980 right I, i've always got heard an iPhone. I've always heard that standard of living is probably the most dictating factor in regards to wage. The problem is, yeah. is that I can't speak for Massachusetts, but California, 15 to $30 an hour. And, and, and again, I may sound ungrateful when I say this, that's still relatively low. Right. You know, like people envision, oh, well, $30 an hour, that's what, about 60K a year, roughly. Mm -hmm. By definition, that is not the poverty line, but- definitely doesn't get you very far i mean that's that's middle of the road or sub middle of the road and again and again going back to the argument well it's not how much you make it's how you spend it okay mm. you factor into how much individuals spend on bills and other such necessities like basic, basic necessities. necessities yeah you end up not having as much money to to fuck around with and on top on top of that you have state and federal taxes which holy shit can the number get any higher i digress i digress okay i'll save it i can only speak for california that it's still rough with a number like that yeah 30 like 30 dollars an hour in 1980, that's buku bucks right there. But we'll also don't forget 725 an hour, even yeah. in the late 70s and the 80s. Like, yes, it's minimum wage. Yes, it's for people that are supposed to be like. But you could live started. off of it. You could live off exactly. Yeah, you could live off if you, it. If you were living, at least if you had like thirty dollars yeah. an hour at that time. Are you kidding that me? Bo that boss. That boss. That boss was mental. <laughs> like yeah. I don't know how else to describe it. That boss was crazy to be paying his uh I don't know, I forgot what fast food restaurant they worked at uh, in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. But like <laughs> where where Nicolas right. Cage cameos in the background, fun mm -hmm. fact. Uh yeah. like there's no way he's making thirty dollars. You, you an can't hour survive off Maddie's. of a profit margin like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, Your and business again, can't like, function. Nineteen eighty whatever, like you don't have to. You can actually make eight dollars an hour and be pretty much okay. Anyway, all that yeah, all that money. If I was being paid thirty dollars an hour in nineteen eighty, where seven twenty five was the standard, and it was a livable standard. I mean, that's just gravy at the end of the day. If you if you know how to invest your money and save your money in the nineteen eighties, shit, thirty dollars an hour. God, this last is a perennial conservative favorite. So lower minimum wage. What we've been talking about. If wages could be lowered, the argument goes, employers could, we could create more jobs. Of course, low paid jobs do not lift people out of poverty. There you go. So catch 22. Views like Banfield's would, would not dominate public policy until the 80s. Some anti poverty warriors saw the culture of poverty as an excuse for a middle class dominated technocratic approach to ending poverty. Simply put, if the poor were so shiftless and disorganized, they could not be expected to help themselves. Others, however, used the culture of poverty to argue for a more activist and populist approach. 
the poor were so deeply damaged by their condition, they needed government encouragement to organize their communities and stand up for themselves, almost as a kind of... Uh... Socialism? No, collective therapy. <laughs> Either way, the middle class view of the poor guaranteed that whatever else they got, multi-service centers, area redevelopment programs, community action projects, they would not get money. In fact, the one clear policy implication of the quote, the quote, culture of poverty was that the poor could not be trusted with money. And as the view of people who had money, enough in fact to have been disturbed by affluence, there could hardly have been a more brazen defense of the status quo. Thus, the middle class discovered it was not alone. There were others in America, people who were unfortunate, downtrodden, needing help. But it was the further misfortune of the poor to be discovered by a middle class that was tormented by the prospect of its own decline. In all the debate and discussion that surrounded the beginning of the war on poverty, and later in the endless evaluations of it, the poor had no voice. In fact, their principal virtue, as opposed to the African-American insurgency, was that they were so agreeably silent. The poor, the invented poor, came to serve as a mirror for the middle class, reflecting its own dread submission to the imperatives of consumption, the tyranny of affluence. More than that, the poor became the scapegoats for an affluence they alone were fully excluded from and fully innocent of. And so they have remained, even though, as we shall see next, the middle class soon found its worst fears realized in its own children. That does it for chapter one, the infantilization of the poor and the end of a chapter that I feel poses more questions than answers, but I, I feel like well, can't that's what be chapter solved. ones usually do. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like it can't be solved in a dialogue um, equivalent to that of a college discussion. And despite us being both college graduates, I'm not going to approach it as a college discussion. I've decided not to. Uh -oh. uh, instead, I'm going to approach it as if I'm five and I'm <laughs> ignorant to the world around me and just want it as cookie cutter, as clear, straight to the point as possible. I feel like I have no choice but to do it this way because all I'm looking for is an answer. I'm not looking for more questions. Right. And if you can't provide that to me, Mancini... Of course, I, I know you can't because I can't find it myself and I can't ask Barbara. Sorry. I want to know one thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to get back to the point that we had. Um, I think the one that we delved on the most was someone had succumbed to the softening effects of consumer culture. Someone so alien. No, that wasn't it. Um, I'm trying to find it because... It was a point that I said, oh, I wanted to come back to at the end of the episode. Ah, yes. It was within the last couple pages of the, like the very, almost the very end. I kind of want to say that it was the experts and policymakers who promoted the notion of culture. They simply wanted to underscore the psychic damage inflicted by poverty. Poverty is damaging, but the picture they ended up painting of the poor led itself readily to reactionary interpretations. Mm. Mm -hmm. I believe that was it, but also... Ah, no, that wasn't it. Banfield considers a number of possible solutions to present orientedness. Psychotherapy must be rejected because the poor are too inarticulate to benefit from it. That was what I wanted to, to go into. 
And I want to approach this like I'm five years old because I want to pose the question, how do you educate the poor huddled masses who strive to improve themselves socioeconomically? You know, because I don't believe as much as people would like to believe that, oh, well, here's how I'm improving myself sociopolitically. Okay. Well, you adopt a series of, of ideals for a registered representative representative who wants to enact these ideals in your best interest. Okay. Mm. Well, that ends up alienating half the population. So what's next? Well, I could try um, educating myself socioeconomically. Okay. Well, you have to factor in the amount of individuals who actually earn a livable, and yes, I say livable, wage. How do you do that when there's such an uneven divide of the haves and the have-nots? Well, you can teach them how to save, you can teach them how to spend, and you can teach them how to invest and really prepare for the future. Okay, well, there's individuals that can't benefit from that because they're not working on as much of a time horizon as, say, someone who can afford to lose all of their money in the inherent risks of investing and saving. What else you got? Well, they they could implement job mobility. I mean, no one has to same has to stay at the same job forever. They could be educated to a point where they don't have to stay in menial labor. Mm-hmm. How much is that tuition bill again? Well, they could take out loans, Sebastian. Well, see, that's the thing. I don't think someone who's already in poverty wants to dig themselves an even deeper hole, and without even. Going into chapter two's effects on children, which, oh boy, we're going to have a field day on that. How do you mitigate that risk? It always comes back to that. So asking Mm. like I'm five, how do you educate the poor on the poor huddled masses? And it leads me to believe that there is no answer because there's we're not actively seeking one. Well, why would we want why would we want to educate the poor? Well, for one thing, why would you want to fund education? Right. That, that's why would the, you want to fund education? Question. Right. Well, yeah. The, no, exactly. But but then again, us as middle class denizens who could afford education and who have college degrees to show for it, what did we gain out of that that we could vicariously put back into the community as something substantial to elevate those who perhaps didn't have that chance? Well, even like really, I mean, even speaking from my own background quickly, I, you know, when it comes to just basic economics, my education in just being responsible with money, a lot of it came from realistically my own father being a business major, number one, but Mm -hmm. also just the fact that I was directed in so many horrible directions thanks to the fact that I had over the span of my whole educational career, I only had one econ teacher. Mm-hmm. And she also happened, by the way, and, and you know, I, what I'm about to say should not be considered controversial. It's not me demeaning in any way anyone who works in this particular profession, but it does lead to a lot of questions in terms of why this person is double dipping their uh, educational jobs. Um, Mm -hmm. because a similar thing could certainly be said about one Algebra 2 teacher I had who was also a baseball coach. Mm -hmm. My econ teacher, who I only had for one semester in high school, because that was how it worked. You had an econ teacher 
uh, one semester of your senior year, and then the other semester of your senior year, you had the they just said government, but it was basically yeah. like a, I, I had that I had that same yeah. Uh, it, I mean, it was basically like a poli sci teacher, except it wasn't called poli sci. It's basically like yeah. American government. But mm -hmm. the point I'm getting at is my econ teacher was also the cheer coach, with a sketchy history of sleeping with students who were 18 mm -hmm. years old, and then marrying one who was 18 years old. This mm -hmm. is all alleged, but at the same time, the fact that the school acknowledged it tells me it's not just claims. Anyway, I mean, it, my my education and a lot of that was horrible, and it really wasn't until, in all honesty, my last year of college, when you and I met, that I started to grow, I, I started to gain a much better sense of economic disparity, and in a way that I really hadn't really ca I honestly cared to grasp it before and then that really for reasons that people can you know anyone that's listened to mars on life knows that really intensified once the pandemic hit uh, right. well it intensified for me when the pandemic hit and the disparities just completely here's how bad it really is and right as i raise my hands up like i'm holding a shirt um a wet t-shirt but if you want to improve the economic situation of so many people that are living in poverty, for one thing, it boils down to one of the things that we always claim to value, but we really absolutely never do, and that's education. Right. Um, put more stock in just anything tangible with what you teach young people, especially when it comes to the economy, when it comes to paying taxes. I mean, for goodness sake, how many times... How many times, whether it's been on air or off air or just conversations we've, ha we've had with literally anyone we know, regardless if it's a family member, a close friend, whoever it may be, how many times have we, hell, somebody that we're serving at our jobs, how many times have we basically talked about, wow, imagine how great things would be if some of the basic things that are useful in everyday life were actually taught to us rather right. than, what's a gerund, you know? What's a what's a what's the quadratic equation? You know, right, oh, right. And, we're, we're, I'm gonna have you cut open a cat over the span of a week because that's really important to your progress uh, to serve the needs of capital. Well, that's just what it the too, hell? because you often you, you don't find courses like that, of, certainly not in public education, and you end up having to go to a privatized institution. I don't care if it's a state college. I don't care if it's a community college. <laughs> there is a paywall. It is privatized to some stretch of the imagination. Mm -hmm. Sorry. It's not until you actually have to, to hone in and, and siphon in economics, marketing, finance, like all majors that, for the most part, aren't taught in public education outside of maybe one econ or one government course where you do have that. That, that 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 lust for life when you do grasp the concepts and you understand what a good fiscal decision is, what a bad political decision is, how they correlate, how they don't correlate, how your registered representative who's elected sitting behind the fucking Oval Office is implementing or not implementing changes that could be or could not be detrimental to those who actually really need that assistance. So but that's that's where you run into a wall where, especially at least from what I remember from my own econ class, as well as just anecdotally, 
the problem is is that you get taught all of the basics and, and this is yeah. where i do equate it to something like history or even a, a government course or political science course where if you're just taught all the basics everything sounds great and sounds fine and then when you apply it to yourself it's only when you hit that that point where you're like oh wait why isn't this working out for me mm -hmm. all the little nuances and all the little things that would really help you out for example if we're talking about politics here and you're somebody who thinks yeah 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 i'm i'm really supportive of you know human rights and and mm -hmm. equality with you know between men and women and the LGBT community absolutely deserves rights. Yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, my Republican representative says a lot of great points. I'm going to vote for him. Mm -hmm. And if that person's not educated just on the literal basics of what's the difference between a Democratic Party and the Republican Party, which I've known people in journalism who have operated that way, and guess what? Some of them have become political reporters. Right. So... Again, my five-year-old brain uh, kicks into hyperdrive when I say, "Okay, then how do we, how do we tear down that wall, Mr. Gorbachev?" No, really, really. How yeah. do we expand the opportunity for those in in poverty to have that level of education and understanding that this is where they are and this is what's needed these mm -hmm. are suggestions of a few good decisions that one can make and and i don't think that it has to be alienating as what the book entails i believe that the poor don't have to be scapegoats even though they they undoubtedly are yeah i don't feel like ish, and, i don't know maybe it's controversial for me to say but i don't feel like the homeless epidemic that we do have has to be a scapegoat. Like I look at something like the homeless epidemic and think, wow, how do we fix that? And to my, to my last, you know, uh, chagrin about, Oh, well, you know, there, there's a burning car on the heart on the highway. I'm going to stop and recognize the issue. You know, you can't just ignore it. Seb. There's a part two to that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. alongside seeing the burning car on the highway, how do you put out the fire? Yeah. Okay. How do you ameliorate the issue so that it doesn't cause, get this, a traffic jam of other people who want to look at the, at the fire? So again, it sounds, it may sound stupid when I say it like, hey, let's fix the issue and let's do it in such a way that it's like, well, it's so e it's almost akin to the whole why don't homeless people buy a house? But really, why does it need to be boiled down even further in a collegiate discussion when it's just like, you know what the right thing is to do? You know what the right policies to enact are. You know that homelessness is an issue just as mental health is, poverty is, the war on drugs is, which let's be serious, the war on drugs won that fight. <laughs> LGBTQ issues, the separation of church and state and all the fucking batshit followers that, that, that don't want that to happen, that would rather live in a theocracy. How do we fix the issues that are plaguing this country? How do we stop people from having these opinions that bastardize the lives of others? How? 
Well, I, and I, I know, have... and I know, and I know you can't answer that because it's a it's well, a very overarching question. It is, I but I I mean I have one I do have one very simplified answer, and I do realize that I've been yeah. It's a simple question. I just want a simple answer, whether it be you know tar and feather the current politicians we have now, or <laughs> or or reelect the good guys. It's like okay, at this point, I'll take anything because. Well, the ch the change yeah. that I'm seeing proposed by new candidates, left or right, I think people are expecting when you have the Karen Basses of the world, and I don't I don't know why her name just pops up. I think it's just because we talked about her previously. Well, she's saying, she's a great example. I yeah, mean, seeing that they're gonna they're yeah. gonna end homelessness. I think when people hear that on the news, they expect it to be done in the time frame that she's in her position, and obviously. That's such an overarching issue. There, there's no way. But I think people in California, the constituents of that which she's representative of, would want to see that change. And I'm not talking about, hey, let's just gerrymander the fuck out of them and just completely pick them up and move them somewhere else, a la Patrick. But a la Santa Clarita. An <laughs> actual physical demographic shift. Mm -hmm. in having a lot of homeless people to no homeless people. Right. Or or a staggering decline of homeless people. Well, I think if you wanted to boil it down to uh, electing new politicians that would actually attempt to curb the problem, the easiest start to that, to, the easiest start that leads to that potential solution would simply be electing people that don't serve the interests of capital. Okay. You know, where if if you don't have politicians that are so in bed with lobbyists, special interest groups, um big time fundraisers and celebrities that offer a pretty penny whenever that person is in a pinch, specifically when they're running for re-election. Mm -hmm. Um or I mean a good example and I know we've talked about it multiple times, I don't probably need to go into the specifics of it, but if you're a candidate running for Congress, and you get that celebrity support from your Patton Oswalt's and whoever else, and then fast forward past when you've resigned, and the person who wanted your job to begin with is not making those same decisions, is not making, and arguably they're running a campaign that is still serving the interests of capital, mm -hmm. but then they lose. Yeah, And they ran such a campaign that was so non-compromising but also so milk toast and middle of the road and not go-getter enough besides uh, my opponent voted for traitors you know it's like okay but we need something that's more tangible we need something that's going to actually elevate people or make people feel elevated rather than just kiss the ass kiss the asses of those that are you know wealthy enough that they'll actually pay a couple thousand to your campaign because ultimately, you are not just serving the people that put a few thousand in your campaign. You're, you need to be the face of the people that are putting in a couple bucks for your campaign. Because they think, I have nothing left. You're my last hope. And if you want to be that candidate, don't be a, you know, I, hey, well, I was going to say don't be a phony. But we all know who that sounds like. Um, but for, for real, like, don't, don't fake being a candidate for working class voters or for middle class voters like be legitimate but also don't kiss the ass of the mouse for example 
which in right. California is rampant. I mean, a lot of a lot of people want that money from the likes of you know the film industry. That's been going on for decades, uh, yeah. almost a century at this point. But um, I mean, yeah, that's that's at least the first step. And I can safely say, at least in California, more specifically Los Angeles, you at least have now a good chunk for the first time, a good chunk of the Los Angeles city council that arguably, arguably could lead towards that better future. It's just, you've still got a lot of BS. You got to tunnel through until you get out of Shawshank. Sure. So it's, that's the thing is that we're now, we're at a point where we've, we've dug ourselves so deep that trying to get back out of it is really going to take a lot of time. Um, and before we run out of time, I'll just quickly get through the first section of, uh, it's pretty short. I'll get through the first section of, uh, chapter two. I don't know, actually very quickly, did that help at all? Does that, I, I, obviously it's a simple it, it, answer, but there's a lot of caveats, but to me, there's a lot of value in it. I'm looking, I'm, I'm really yeah. looking for one overarching answer and again i know i'm not going to find it it's an impossible feat that covers all bases and has equal representation to those affected because there are a lot of those affected i guess the question i'm asking is do i agree with it yes do i want it to be enacted sooner than later in my lifetime also yes do i also know that it won't be enacted in our lifetime also yes because years decades upon decades of societal mayhem and just it, it is the way it is isms have just burdened scapegoated yeah those under the poverty line so i don't blame actually no i do blame individuals looking to make a quick buck off of establishing a right and a wrong an enemy of the people and a and, and and a saving grace of the people because it's just like if you if you're just going to demonize a good chunk of the population like that just based on fiscal status alone fuck you <laughs> you know for those who are really trying to pull themselves out of that situation and this is where i could even for the faintest hope like empathize those who utilize the lottery in a specific way to do so religiously to do so it's like oh man i just i i don't know and that's why i'm kind of wondering if we if we should even continue with chapter two because it's like i personally would love to i mean like i said i could i could read this for hours but i think i'm just going to be left flabbergasted if we kept if we if we kept going i'll make a quick note and then i'll i'll get through this first i mean this is really this is really quick on your point on on just the fact that after years of so much BS and not being able to really lift ourselves up, I mean, think of it this way. A lot of the discussions that are being had, at least on a political level across the country, that you could draw a straight line to, you know, Bernie's ru first run in 2015. If you really think about it, if you like, like to re like to put what you just said into context of getting people out of the the common bs that has driven the political cycle for at least you know if we want to put a number on it well actually before i put a number on it for several election cycles now 
arguably a lot of that is dictated based on just how people generally feel economically. I mean, let's face it. People felt so squashed by the Carter administration and its arguably lack of an economic policy that, of course, you know, America's blue-collar, middle-class, uh, you know, all the New Deal people, for some reason, would look at Ronald Reagan as the, the person who would get us out of the malaise, no pun intended, of Jimmy Carter. But realistically, in terms of a discussion that gets to the heart of the matter without any bells and whistles, it's really almost like a good century. Like, if you want to draw a straight line from Eugene Debs' campaign in 1920, you know, and, and you draw that straight line to 2015, that's, that's really how long it's been. Because since then, you really have not had anyone, at least on the presidential level, talk about the kinds of things that we've been talking about, especially via fear of falling. Um, so, and I know, obviously, there is the veneer of, well, it's all from one side of the aisle, and it's all from more of the extreme side of, you know, the, it's from the left. But at the same time, a lot of the issues that you just talked about in terms of why we've gotten to this point is very much because of the party that is supposed to be quote-unquote representative of the left, the Democratic Party, which kind of betrays a lot of its own principles. Uh, so very quickly, I'll just get through this, and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap up for the evening. Chapter 2. The Middle Class on the Defensive. The middle class intellectuals who hoped the 60s would provide some challenge worthy of their talents had not expected literal danger. Yet, by the middle of the decade, many of them came to feel that their jobs, and possibly even their professions, were about to be blown, uh, excuse me, were about to be lost, blown away in a violent, unforeseen cataclysm. An account by Diana Trilling, writer and wife of the famous Columbia University professor Lionel Trilling, conveys the terror felt by many of her age and station. In the spring of 1968, she experienced something so harrowing that she could only compare it to a hurricane she had once witnessed on the Connecticut shore. Yeah, I know, we, we can... Oh, he disappeared. Okay. Uh, I, I actually don't know if I should keep going. Uh, shit. I'm, I'm just going to hang tight until he gets back. Did he leave a message? No, he did not. Oh, boy. It's like a Twin Peaks episode. All it needs is, like, ethereal music. Sorry, I stopped because I lifted my head up and you were gone, and I was like, Oh no, he's been taken! <laughs> Sorry, I just had to use the restroom. So anyway, I was, uh, yeah, just, it was just briefly talking about an account from uh, Diana and... Well, Diana Trilling, wife of Lionel Trilling, who I believe was like a... I've heard about him many a time elsewhere. He's like a Orwell scholar. Uh, a pre-Hitchens mm. Orwell scholar. Anyway, um talking about something that she noticed uh, during a hurricane in Connecticut, which is possible. We, we can get hurricanes up here, so... Yay! Um, sleep was impossible for everyone in the vicinity. The most decorous of us had no hesitation in phoning each other at whatever hour of the night, 2 o'clock, 4 o'clock, when the lonely waiting got to be more than we could bear. 
Trilling described the vicinity in question, the Columbia campus and its environs, as a constantly shrinking white island, and no one could sleep because they were lying awake listening for the tramp or rush or scuffle of invasion. The danger arose from the student rebellion at Columbia, which was terrifying enough to Trilling and her beleaguered comrades, but also suggested the potential horror of an uprising in nearby Harlem. Already the students had demonstrated that uh, had demonstrated what Trilling saw as a capacity for hatred and violence, reportedly shouting at an odd couple, uh, wow, an odd couple, at an old couple crossing the campus. Go home and die, you old people, and gratuitously punching a law professor in the stomach. Worse, the student rebels routinely used words calculated to distress the dec uh, decorous, like bullshit and motherfucker. For Trilling, Columbia had become a war zone. A faculty wife became short-order chef at any hour of the day or night for her husband and his exhausted colleagues, working with rest to protect, not the abstract idea of a university, but the living university which must be sustained against a saner day. For a significant number, number of America's intellectuals, the student uprising was ultimately a more grievous threat than the African-American insurgency because it struck so close to home. The university is, after all, the core institution of the professional middle class, yeah. employer of its intellectual elite and producer of the next generation of middle class professional personnel. Attack the university and you attack the heart, and surely the womb of the class itself. In response to this unprecedented threat, erstwhile liberals like Trilling began to think of their place in American society in a new way. Once. They had seen themselves as part of a universal middle class, set off only by the superior education and good taste that entitled them to mild reservations about affluence and mass culture. The discovery of poverty had shown that the middle class was not universal, that America was not yet perfect. But this discovery had no way dampened the confidence of middle class, uh, excuse me, of middle class liberals that poverty could be eliminated at no apparent cost to anyone, and middle class people activists and intellectuals, would lead the way. The student movement prompted a grim reassessment. Middle-class intellectuals, many of them liberal on matters of race and poverty, began to think of themselves as part of a social group that might indeed have something to lose if others were to gain. It was not the young who had failed, but the young are seldom taken seriously as moral agents for either good or evil, but the adults, parents, professors, and professionals generally, who represent authority. Whatever else the student rebellion meant, it meant that this authority had failed. In the eyes of the student rebels, adult authority had failed because it was discredited by its complicity in war and domestic injustice. An elite can still be liberal in its attitudes toward those who are less favored, but an elite that feels beleaguered, and beyond that, doubts the firmness of its own will is not likely to remain liberal for long. Mm. We think of the 60s as the high watermark of middle-class liberalism. That has to be a, a Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas reference. High watermark talking about the 60s, just because that's what he talks about with, you can see, you know, if you're in, if you're at a certain point in Las Vegas and you can see the waves, you know, hit that high watermark before they hit the beach, like that's, oh, it's one of the best things ever written in the last, like, 100 years. Anyway, we think of the 60s as the high watermark of middle-class liberalism, but they were also, for an influential minority, the point of departure for a much harsher, more cynical, 
and self-interested view of the world. And I think the best summation of just that alone, which obviously the rest of the book is going to dive into even further, she's talking about the baby boomers. Because I know we've talked about it before on Mars on Life, with the baby boomers there was that promise that because a lot of them were coming of age during the Vietnam War era, during the age of the student protests, there was this idea that, oh, we are, the, we are that revolution. And, you know, all these people voted for Reagan and years later probably supported the Iraq War. So it's, it's fascinating how you think, wow, now you've got a whole generation of people that are going to, you know, go against the, the constraints of America. And instead, not only did they actually rebel, they reinforced those constraints because they became a part of those restraints. Yeah, I don't know. What, any thoughts on that sort of introduction to Chapter 2? Um, I mean, I'd ideally like to save it until we actually get into it. I know <laughs> this was sort of a... Admittedly, I didn't think we were going to get into Chapter 2 tonight. Um, no, no, no immediate thoughts. I'm still kind of reeling in for everything that was discussed in Chapter 1. And... Okay. Um, I'm just sort of wondering how it how it all plays out. Yeah, I mean, I will say generations mm -hmm. uh, for the proceeding generations. I mean, the good news is is that even though she is going to dive into well, okay, the generation that came after the oh we discovered poverty oh what's what is this the the generation that comes after those fools. You know, it doesn't fall down the path of sounding like, you know, Robert Zemeckis talking about the Vietnam War era and Forrest Gump. It, it is <laughs> it is actually pretty, um, it stands out. Like, it, it's definitely not going to feel like the path commonly taken in terms of describing young people in the 60s and especially who they became. So I, I, I can rest assured it's not going to be it's not going to be like that but um mm -hmm. you want to wrap this uh wrap this up let's wrap it up okay Thank you for listening to The Falling Middle Cast. Our co-hosts are Ryan Mancini and Sebastian Shug. Episodes are produced by Ryan Mancini and feature music by Kevin McLeod. Check out our main series, Mars on Life, or listen to our other spinoff, Diet NIMBY, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.